Welcome to Conversations with Alan Wolper, a half-hour audio biography featuring unique personalities whose lives and ideas are on the cutting edge. And now, here's Conversations with Alan Wolper. I've been here before. I know the treatment that you get when you sit down. I said, you know, I just wanted something really, really small to eat. And this is what you get. You get 17 salads plus hummus. This is known as a Yemenite grill restaurant. Notice, Yemenite, Palestinian, Iraq, Moroccan, Moroccan. This is Russian. Carrots are from Europe. Beets are from Europe. These are sort of Eastern because of the turmeric. Turkish, Moroccan, I don't even know, Greek. How many countries are represented in one place? That is an excerpt from Roger Sherman's latest documentary, In Search of Israeli Cuisine, an extraordinary journey through Israel's kitchens, restaurants, and vineyards, showing the most modern and ancient farming and cooking techniques created by the polyglot of people who have migrated to Israel from around the world. The 90-minute film will open at the Lincoln Plaza Cinema on March 24th and then will be featured at theaters nationwide. Roger Sherman's documentaries have examined the lives of sculptor Alexander Calder and composer Richard Rogers and restaurateur Danny Meyer, a man for all seasons, writer, film producer, director, still photographer. His films have won a National Emmy Award, a Peabody Award, and two Academy Award nominations a resume that covers the tiny part of your life that took us weeks to go over. Let's start with the elusive Israeli cuisine. Why Israel? I mean, I would think that France and Italy would really be angry at all this. Well, I always wanted to go to France and never considered going to Israel until I was dragged there on a food press trip by Joan Nathan, who your listeners, some of your listeners may know that we call her the doyen of Jewish American cookbooks. And she called me in 2010 and said, I'm leading a food press trip and somebody just canceled and you have to come in three weeks. And I never considered going to Israel. And I got there and I experienced something I've never experienced before. I think the hottest food scene in the world. Why? You think, or just you, or more people? I, I think people are coming to that idea that 60. it's the hottest, hottest food scene in the world. And that's because, as you said in your lead at the Polyglot, 150 different cultures have either come to Israel or never left. Jews, Palestinians, Arabs, Christians, Druze, and all of these cultures are making food. Now, we're very proud in America of our melting pot. A lot of people in Israel don't want to be a melting pot. They want to preserve their grandmother's recipes. It's also the size of New Jersey. So we spread out across the United States, but it's all right there. So if you go to Tel Aviv, you better make reservations to restaurants before you leave. Why? Because it's just like New York. It's just like San Francisco or Paris or Los Angeles. It's the hottest scene. One o'clock in the morning, it's hopping in Tel Aviv. 
For the first time ever in the last few years, people are going to Jerusalem, not just to see the holy sites, but to have dinner. I was laughing when you said it was just like New York when I saw a woman driving the wrong way on a bicycle on one of the side streets. I said, yeah, this is New York, right? Well, we could talk about the drivers of Israel, too, but I think let's keep to food. While they're eating. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me why. I mean, you, you do this remarkable thing, which takes you forever. You're almost broke by the time you finish. Dorothy Callens, your wife, says, stop it. But then, you no, you say you're going to stop it, and she says you can't, right? Right. Well, what right. happened during all this period of— Well, the first thing that happened was— It looked I, easy, by the way. I, thank you. Well, it's, it's supposed to look easy. The first thing that happened is I came back from that first trip in Israel, and I started telling people about this amazing experience, and they either didn't believe me or they laughed at me. And I thought, aha, this is a good subject for a film because I want to make films that surprise and delight. How long were you there that first trip? A week. But we were journalists. We were moving, you know, two, three, four different places every day. Cheese, like you can only get in little towns in France and Italy. Wine, people don't understand. Wine that is winning international acclaim. On the Golan Heights. In the Golan Heights and everywhere, in many, many places, in the south, in the Negev. The Negev, I equate to the moon except 120 degrees. And they're growing things that you wouldn't believe there. It wasn't easy, is it? I mean, you have a, a, a group of people, a num- numerous groups of people from everywhere. All of them have laying claim to certain kinds of dishes. Even the Palestinians were a little upset about that. Hummus, falafel. Who does it belong to? Yeah, that's a very interesting question, which we do go into in detail in the film. And I let people express their frustration and even their anger. You know, I let a Palestinian chef say, we're not happy about the way we've been treated, even in food. And that's the thing about Israel. Even in food, you can't escape the conflict. I was was worrying about that, that that moment and with the Infotata in 2000 when you had to take the names of Palestinian restaurants off because you were afraid that it was going to cause some grief. Yeah, people stopped going to the hot restaurants that were owned by Palestinians. But the Orthodox, the kosher restaurants are all closed. So the Palestinians do an incredible business on Friday nights and Saturdays because actually 80% of Israelis are secular. Which means? which means that they're ready to go party on a Saturday. And, and I was so naive, and I think most Americans, Jews included, don't really know anything about the Israeli people. They hear about the government. They hear about the constant fighting. The Israeli people, nothing. I arrived that first day ready to take a nap because I was totally jet-lagged. I opened the curtains on the beach, and there was a party going on. And I thought— What beach? Where was this? In Tel Aviv. And I thought, where is—why aren't they in shul? Why aren't they in temple? They're all religious. I actually saw a travel channel show that said everybody in Israel is kosher and everybody is religious. And it's just not true. Why is there so much misinformation? Because we only get the bad news here. We don't get any other news. And I didn't make this film to be a travelogue, but— the tourism folks love it. Or to make a political a political. Or to make a political film. Um, but you can't not be political 
And I think that, you know, I grew up in this business with a social conscience. And before I was a filmmaker, I had a social conscience. And I try to change the world in, in little bits. And so there's, you know, everything is, is political. And everybody's asking you what the reaction has been. And so are we. I am completely shocked. I never expected. Here we are one year ago the film was released. We're in well over 100 festivals and special screenings around the world. January 2016. That's right. That's when it, it first happened. And it took five years to make. And now, as you said, we're playing theatrically. We opened March 24th at Lincoln Plaza, perhaps the best art house in the world, or at least in the United States, and certainly the best in New York City. And we're in Boston and Atlanta and Washington and San Francisco and Los Angeles and San Diego and every week more. And people, if I can just put an informational plug in here. Sure, go. People go can plug. find out when screenings are happening, both festivals, synagogues, community centers, and theatrical screenings on our website, which is IsraeliCuisineFilm.com. And you were ready to give the whole thing up. I was a couple times ready to give the whole thing up because it was so difficult to raise money, and I'm just not sure why. We, we had a fundraiser with a lot of experience, and I broke the very first rule of documentary filmmaking. Do not put your own money into your film. But I thought that the money was right around the corner. And it barely came. I mean, I did raise enough to do it, but I never earned a salary. And so there were two major times where I said to my wife, this is it. We can't do this. We can't afford this. We're spending our savings. And she said, no, you have to continue. Why? Not because of Israel, not because we're such big supporters of Israel, because she saw the importance of this film as a different kind of subject for my career. Thank you, Dorothy. She was right. Dorothy Kalins. Right. Who happened to be a pretty good pretty good uh, magazine writer, editor, Newsweek, Metropolitan Home. She started Savoir. Savoir Magazine. She created. So whatever I know about film, about food, she taught me and, and knows a whole lot more. She came on the scout with me. and um, You did something unusual. You used a food guide. Yes, I don't use hosts. I don't like a host. I think it it takes the audience a step away from the subject. But I realized that I needed somebody who understands who understands the culture, who understands the people that could be in the kitchens, that could talk the same language. And I didn't know who that would be until I met Michael Solomonoff from Philadelphia, who has Zahav and quite a few other restaurants. James Beard Award winner, his book, Zahav, A World of Israeli Cooking, won Cookbook of the Year, the Oscar of the James Beard Awards last year. And he's funny and self-deprecating and fantastic. We spent three weeks on a bus together going all over Israel, a hundred locations, and we're still talking to each other. He had all that food, and he kept licking his mouth. And the thing I remember most of all, he says, the butter's better than margarine. So I'll never forget that. Yeah. What, Margarine's uh, terrible for you. Everybody, listen, stop using margarine. One last thing that you got from this trip. What's the, the best 
the, the, the dish that defines Israeli cuisine? Whatever I was eating that day. Well, everybody's listening to Conversations with Alan Walpern, WBGO 88.3 and WBGO.org. And the man licking his lips is Roger Sherman, another one of our guests whose lives and ideas are on the cutting edge. Roger is an award-winning documentary producer, a photographer, who is touring the country with a 90-minute film called In Search of Israeli Cuisine, a mouth-watering trip through Israel's growing food and wine world, a journalistic tour that begins in uh, New York City. Can we kind of fast forward to, oh, no, go backwards to when you were just Roger at Scarsdale High School or on Fifth Avenue or something? <laughs> I mean, you, you just didn't jump into Israel and take, take a plane there. There was a long period of time when you did other things. Certainly. I had no idea what I wanted to do when I went to college. I started getting interested in photography, dropped out of college, went to Europe for a year, moved to Western Massachusetts and found myself at Hampshire College where I was, went there to study photography, picked up film the way any art student would, would try, you know, other art like. kinds of things. And you also, like also design and other kinds of things, which I'm terrible at, drawing. And graduated with a double major of film and photography and started Florentine Films a year after I graduated from college and have done nothing but that since. A disease, you and a fellow by the name of Ken Burns. Who had we were college good... roommates. Who Ken influenced who? We did it together. We do dove in headfirst with a third partner named Buddy Squires, who's a filmmaker and one of the top directors of photography, and a fourth member, Larry Hott, came on a few years later. He was a friend of mine. And we've all stayed in it, and we're all still making films, and still, we're still friends. Still Florentine? Florentine, Florentine Films is four different companies now. We realized after a few films that nobody really wanted to do the nuts and bolts work of hustling and, and accounting and those kinds of things. Um, so we separated as a business but share the name Florentine Films. Brooklyn Bridge. That was an Academy Award nomination. The two that was of, our first film. The first film. How that old were you? was our first film. You and, you and, you and Ken Burns? How old yeah. were you guys? 13, I, 14? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it was. We started out as a crew for other companies, and that's how we learned. You're not a professional when you graduate from college. I don't care what you have studied or how many films you've made or how many books you've written. You're not a professional. You have to be out in the world. And so we... Worked for the BBC, Italian television, French television, Danish television as crew. And then Ken had this idea, I've got it. Let's do this film, Brooklyn Bridge. And we were young whippersnappers. And how whipper and how younger? That took how... four years to make. Uh, I can't even add it up right now, but it, we, we were still. <laughs> 24, 25, yeah. 26, like that. Yeah. And then all these other things, my goodness. You know that, um, who is this guy, Charlie Rose, whatever he is, he said that something you, something that you produce called Alexander Calder, a pretty good sculptor, that it was an American masterpiece. He liked it. <laughs> I, I, was think, I was thinking this guy wanted uh, Roger Sherman to do him, you know, and that feeling. 
Do people people uh, approach you like that, and they, they see the all time. this stuff? Well, do I me? get approached all the time. I've got this great idea, this great film. You've got to make this film. They don't understand that that filmmaking is ungodly expensive, and it's there are many many fabulous ideas in very few places to both air it, to broadcast it, stream it, so that people will watch it enough people will watch it and now it's harder because there are so many places that people want to watch and listen now it's to harder. it exactly it's and hard. the sweetest sound they've ever heard and oh what a beautiful morning right richard rogers yeah that was a fun film both of those films were were american masters and um pbs on pbs yeah i've spent my career mostly doing films for PBS. I have done some cable films. As a, as a Richard Rogers freak, I was wondering what that would be like. I was waiting to ask you. It's been weeks now. The, the challenge of Richard Rogers, as with the challenge of Alexander Calder, is there are fans who basically feel he is theirs. They own him. Like you, perhaps, if you really know all of Richard Rogers' work... I'm not going to sing you're now, gonna look. Yeah. You're going to look at this film or, you know, the TV guide and say, what does this guy know? He's not going to tell me anything. And that kept me up at night. How, how could I do a general interest film for f millions of people who didn't know Richard Rogers and entertain them and educate them and inspire them at the same time give to the people who I own it, don't tell me anything, something new? And... They got pretty good reviews, both of them. <laughs> well, well, interesting thing is, I assume that's what led to the uh, Israeli cuisine. How do you how do you express the feelings of this? My wife wrote this polyglot of, of folks that are that are in is in this little tiny place yeah. called Israel. Yeah, it was. You don't decide. I don't decide in advance, I use a really terrible pun, not intended, my process is organic. And I get involved in a subject and I learn about the subject, but what makes my films successful are the people that are in them. I'm always doing a portrait. Are you Whether, worried each time you do it? Absolutely. Scared to death maybe? Absolutely. That this How could I one? possibly get myself into this again? You're going to screw it up? Going to screw it up. It's not going to be good. I've done it enough that I know I can make a good film. Can I make a great film? Can I make film that people are going to want to watch? And that's, you know, it's... That's scary we, as I hell. call it my... Actually, Dorothy had this, the phrase, it's called worrying through it. And you never stop worrying. Did I get that shot right? Is there any other shot I need? Is, did I ask the right questions of that person? Is there somewhere else that I need to go with him? And even in small scenes in every film, if I'm talking to a person, I have to get them to express their passion about the subject. And when it's all done, do you say, oh, my God, I didn't do that. I should have done that. Why didn't I do that? <laughs> I try not to regret. But after five years of making In Search of Israeli Cuisine, at the very first screening of it, first of all, I didn't know anybody was going to show up. It was at Palm Springs International Film Festival on January 8, 2016, and they sold out in their biggest auditorium, 400 seats, twice, I literally cried for the first 20 minutes. 
because I didn't know I'd ever finish this film, well, and I didn't know if people would like it. You're listening to Conversations with Alan Wolper on WBGO 88.3 and WBGO.org. Our guest is documentary producer Roger Sherman, whose 90-minute film In Search of Israeli Cuisine is being shown all across America. Roger, your next documentary is also sure to get a lot of attention. The story of Jamie Peebles, a 65-year-old former college professor from where? I couldn't find that. From outside of Boston. Which is, what school was that? Well, he went to Hampshire. We knew each other at Hampshire. He taught at BU, but he is now a she. Television engineer who was a longtime friend of a fellow named Roger Sherman, 40 years. That's right. Who is a transgender. We've had someone else here before who was discussing the whole idea of transgender, but they didn't know the people that they were reporting on and doing the documentary on until, you know, they interviewed him. You've known this woman. Yeah. The title of the film right now, I've started filming it in September, is Becoming Jamie, Shock and Joy. And I filmed her confirmation surgery from male to female in San Francisco at the end of November. And tomorrow I go up and we, we do other things. It's, it's a very personal story. It's a very intimate story. Jamie didn't realize that she was a woman until she was 63 years old. And looking back, she sees things that she did, not necessarily good things to herself. Did you have any idea that she, that she was a... Did I? Yeah, no. not at all. Not at all. You I didn't him. even know she was, he was bisexual in college. That was not part of our relationship. So. But you, know, you saw him over the years? Occasionally we saw, but it was a very small film and photography program, very tight-knit. We really came together. And it's been a deep, deep, deep struggle for Jamie and a joy as well to finally realize this is who I am. I am a woman. And I think it will be eye-opening for people. We, as the, the transgender community calls the rest of us cis, cis, C-I-S, cisgender. And I think most of us, because I'm one of them, don't have a clue what they go through. I what had an like. idea when there was a part of uh, this kind of this outline that you, that you gave me that where he is, and I'm sorry if I mix it up, when she is walking her daughter down the aisle, something that a man does at his daughter's wedding. Well, she hopes that will be what it is. And her daughter, who's just out of college in her early 20s, um, lives with Jamie in outside of Boston with her fiancé. They can't afford their own place. It's, it's tough. She's having some issues with it. But she's a wonderful person, and, and she will definitely overcome it. Last I saw her, which was a couple of months ago, she was still calling Jamie dad. Will that change? I don't know. But it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing. There, there are lots and lots and lots of issues. And I think there are many transgender films being made. And I think every one of them is important. And I think mine is going to be very different because... Because you know this the person, yeah. More than that, because Jamie had this revelation so much later in life. And then Isn't Jamie afraid of you? I mean, no, I, if not I was, at all. No? 
Not by what you're going to what you're going to produce the final no, product. No, I don't do hatchet jobs. I don't do things that. It make doesn't people. matter whether it's a hatchet job, but it does matter about the reaction that your films always get. And here's another one: you get a lot of attention because of your relationship. Right. That's why it took fully two months of lots of phone conversations before not only did Jamie agree to do it, but I agreed to do it because I when when Jamie told me that she'd realize that she's a woman, I said, look, I'd love to do a film about you, but I want to do what you need. I don't want to just do a film about you. I'm not going to take advantage of you. And so it was, she wants people to know what being transgender is like. She wants people to know what the struggles and the joys are. You still have final edit. Yes, but we're doing this film together. I'm I'm the director, but we are doing the film together. So it's kind of a collaboration, audiobiography? It's very much a collaboration because Jamie is up in Boston. She's doing lots of video diaries, but she's made films. So, you know, when something great happens, she talks about it. When something terrible happens, she talks about it. She, you know, there was a big snowstorm last week in Boston. She spent three hours shoveling her driveway. She filmed a little bit of it. She was married for a long time as well. 30 years and with two children. And you're interviewing the Elaine, who happens to be her... Ex-wife. Ex-wife. Has agreed also. Yeah. And you and she's agreed to... Have you pre-interviewed her and gotten her reaction no. to all this? No, but she has told Jamie she'd be happy to be involved. Was, the, was his, her relationship from him becoming a her, did that have an effect on the impact of the end of their marriage? No, they've been divorced for quite a few years. Jamie did not have a clue that she was a woman. She was playing, she got into a a computer game called Second Life, which a lot of people will know. And you can play with people around the world and you create avatars and you make houses and you buy and sell things. And she created a male avatar. Three hours later, she said, I don't like this avatar. And she created a female, tall, blue-eyed blonde. That's what Jamie looks like. Two years later, middle of the night, she's playing this game with people around the world, and she looks at this person who she named Jamie, J-A-M-I, not, no E, Lovey, L-U-V-V-I, and she looked at her and she said, oh my God, that's me. And from the next day, she identified as a woman. Her relationship is interesting. With Carol, is that still a relationship? Another yes. transgender? Another S- transgender woman. It's it's very much at the beginning of the relationship. But, um, you know, you hope everybody just has some joy in their lives. So two males have become females, and now they're together. Right. That's hard to fathom for the ordinary person. It's all hard to fathom. So Hard for you? I... Uh, the hardest part for me was calling her her because I've known him for 40 years. So, and, and that's not such a big deal, you know, but fi- I, I'm making, making fewer gender mistakes of late. But I, I see both people. I see Jamie, my friend, the male, and I see Jamie, my friend, the female. And the more we are together and the more we talk, it's becoming much, much easier to see her as a female. What has she said to you about this whole thing? We haven't talked about it. This is really in its infancy. 
Yeah, but but films develop. So I did not want to come right out the first time I met her daughter and say, will you be in the film? Can I talk to you about it? Come on, what do you think? You know, there's nothing that gets me more upset than watching the news and having the journalist say, so how did you feel when your house just burned down? How did you feel when you got cancer diagnosis? How did you feel when you won the gold medal in skiing? Come on, we know how they feel. Ask us a question that means something. So I'm being very careful in everything I do. I've watched a couple of things. I think you are. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your life and work with us. What is surely going to be one of the fastest half hours in our series. I can't believe all the stuff we've left out. Joanna Walper is the senior producer of our program, and Doug Doyle is executive producer. Conrad Seguinetti is our engineer. You could listen to any one of our 100-plus shows in the series by clicking on to Conversations with Alan Walper on WBGO. We're also available on the uh, Public Radio Exchange, which is a syndicate for public radio programs. By the way, you also can connect with us on Conversations with Alan Wolper Twitter until we talk again. I'm Alan Wolper. Special thanks to Phantom Audio, a full-service production facility in the Flatiron District of New York City.